Welcome to season two of Nuances Beyond First Impressions with the Asian Diaspora. Together, we wanted to create a safe space where everyone can learn more about our diverse communities, the complicated relationships we have with our culture, and how they intersect with feminism, queerness, disability, anti-racism, career choices, politics, and more. I'm Ariadne Nila, a Filipino-American from a small town on the southern border of Texas. And I'm Sherilyn Lee, a.k.a. Lazu, a new American originally from the only place a dodo bird ever lived, Mauritius. I know that many of you have said that this podcast has made you feel seen and that it has meant a lot to you to hear stories from other people who look like you, who have had similar experiences. And for those of you who are for the first time hearing about the Asian diaspora experience and didn't even know that Asian people face racism in the Western world, it's been a privilege to bring these stories to you every week. And I would love to bring these stories to even more people who, like you, would find value in them. So if you've gained anything from listening to these podcasts, it would mean the world if in return you would go to whichever platform you're listening to right now and leave us a rating and a review. This helps us rank better in searches and hopefully find more audience members. Thank you again for tuning in every week and for sending us your lovely notes. We have a couple more episodes before the end of this season. And stay tuned all the way to the end to hear about our online event coming up. Thank you so much. Now on to our conversation with Air Apparent. Twitter Spaces is a live audio feature on Twitter that's similar to Clubhouse. CS is an abbreviation for computer science. We've covered these before, but in case you need a reminder, BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. AAPI stands for Asian American or Pacific Islander. As heir apparent, San Francisco-based artist and producer Neil Sethi makes exuberant electronic pop that invites both escapism and self-discovery. Born in Atlanta, Georgia, Sethi grew up on Bollywood and Hindu spiritual music, early 2000s Atlanta rap, and explosive new metal. Since releasing his first tracks in 2017, the independent Indian-American musician has swiftly gained buzz for his expansive take on EDM that draws from influences like James Blake, Mitski, K. Trinata, and Jay Wolf. After landing placements on Spotify's Beats of Tomorrow playlist and making his live debut at last year's Joy Ruckus Club 4 Festival, Sethi released his album Chromatic in August 2022. On the 80s electronic influence project, Sethi captures the highs and lows of a romantic relationship and steps into a bolder, more colorful era of heir apparent. Neil, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, welcome to the show. Why don't we start on your background? Yeah, totally. I grew up in different parts of Atlanta from a little kid to being a middle schooler. Most of that time was spent in a town called Kennesaw. And Kennesaw is a not very diverse part of Atlanta. I think I was one of maybe two Indian Americans in the entire elementary school and under 20 Asian Americans in general. So that was interesting. There was some subtle racism I probably encountered during that time. But uh, I think the way it influenced me was a little bit more more nuanced, not to use a pun. I think it was a lot around my own identity and figuring out, wait, if I'm not white and if I'm like outside of what's cool and what's considered normal here, what does that make me? 
And as a little kid, you're obsessed with trying to fit in. It was interesting because after that, I moved to an area of Atlanta called Alpharetta, where I went to a different middle school and high school. And that was a lot more diverse. But almost in a reaction to my youth, I gravitated towards people who were Asian American. And so all my friends for the longest time and throughout the whole journey in middle school and high school were Asian Americans. And I think it was a lot because I was trying to anchor on this shared experience. It had been locked up for me for so long. So that was cool. Yeah. And then I went to college and I, I think some of these deep identity questions kind of normalized to me. They became more second nature and wasn't trying to answer them as much. It wasn't until I got older that I had a better understanding of my relationship to the culture I grew up in, the culture I was raised in, and how those different things overlap. I was also one of, I think, two Asians in our entire school. So that feeling of being different from other people is definitely relatable. And it's also interesting that the people you gravitated towards were also Asian American. Because I feel like when we're in a room with other Asian Americans, there's just this feeling of we don't have to explain ourselves. We just get it. So I definitely relate to that for sure. Yeah, there's like this comfort built in. There's also these subtleties like, come on over and like they leave their shoes at the door. And I'm like, wow, cool. I, I take these things for granted now, but it's definitely not something every culture does. And so small things like that actually totally add up. I still find it so weird when I'm like at a friend's house and they're they're not Asian American and everybody's got their shoes on in the house. And I'm like, wait, what's going on? Oh, how do you keep this floor right? clean? <laughs> yeah, I agree with you with the shoes. It's something that I cannot get used to. I don't understand how people can keep their shoes in their closet in their bedroom. Clean clothes and dirty shoes should not be in the same space. Yeah, Don't do yeah. that, people. You go to public bathrooms with those things. It's gross. I know. I mean, I'm, I'm even like on another level. I'm like, no outside clothes on yes. in the bed. Yeah. Forget that. Take it off. Whatever. I don't care. Just okay. don't bring it in. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. As soon as you get home, change your clothes. Yes. I even shower oh, now yeah. since COVID. As soon as I get home, close in the laundry, shower, clean inside clothes, yeah. and then I can sit on my furniture. Yeah. Oh my God, same. It's so funny because I used to feel like the way my family did things was different and the standard was the way Western culture did things. Yeah. And now I'm realizing, obviously that's not true, but also it makes more sense to me. I used to be like, mom, why do I have to wear house shoes? Why can't I just wear my shoes in the house? And now I'm like, wait, no, that's disgusting. Did you all have any school lunch stories bringing food to lunch and people being like, what is that? How do you eat that? That smells. And I'm like, oh my God. if I could talk to those people now, I'd be like, get your orientalist garbage out of here. I'm just trying to eat my food and it's probably better than the microwaved food you're eating right now. But when I was small, I was just like, oh yeah, uh, it's, I was kind of sheepish about it. Yeah, I, I had a very different childhood from you guys because I grew up in Mauritius, which is a tiny island east of Madagascar. And actually, over 50% of the population, I think, is of Indian descent. I was a minority as a light-skinned Chinese person. So yeah, we all bought our lunches. I have cousins who grew up in Canada and they did feel ostracized for bringing Asian snacks like dried persimmons. Their friends would be like, ew, that looks gross. What are you eating? But I did not have to deal with that. Yeah, you've watched the show Fresh Off the Boat, there's an episode in one of the first seasons where the lead character gets made fun of for bringing noodles. Oh, he's eating mm. worms. I feel that because I've gotten made fun of. We had snack time on Friday where a student would bring a snack that they bought or their parents prepared. And one time my dad made empanadas and mm -hmm. nobody liked it. Oh no, <laughs> their palates are not refined enough. Yeah. But I remember in that episode, he takes his mom to the store and they buy Lunchables because he wants to fit in. And I'm just thinking of how nutritionally deficient those are. 
but we wanted them to fit in. Yeah, I know. Even now, I have friends who are like, let's go have Lunchables. And I'm like, do we really need to have Lunchables? Is it really good? It's probably not as good as the nostalgia you, you might remember it to be. Yeah. Sherry, that's so cool you're in Mauritius, yeah. by the way. I've now met two people with the roots in Mauritius. Yeah. I will say it feels like now there's a lot more openness. I'm obviously not a kid in middle school or high school, so I can't really speak to that. But my outsider impression is that it feels like there's a lot more appreciation of other cuisines. There's a lot more openness to try them. For a while, if people were thinking about cuisines to eat, it was like Mexican, Chinese, and that was pretty much it. And I think that's expanding. I'm seeing Korean food, Filipino food, Indian food, in small towns in the U.S., and that is maybe an indicator that things are changing. And hopefully that means that more people can bring food from their culture to school and not get gawked at. Definitely, there's a lot more Asian food that's become mainstream, like sushi is super mainstream. I mean, you can buy it at Whole Foods, you know? It's crazy. That's how you know. <laughs> you can buy Pad Thai noodles at Whole Foods. You can buy them at Sprouts. Yes. And I think that was just an article about how ingredients that you would typically have to go to Asian stores to get. Now, Costco has a lot of them. It's definitely gone mainstream, which I hope means kids are not being made fun of anymore. Do you ever feel conflicted where now the same foods that we got made fun of as kids, now it's trendy and now people who might have bullied us as kids are posting that on their Instagram. Look how cultured I am. And because yeah. sometimes it feels weird to me. It's a good question. I'm this way about music. I liked it before it was big or whatever, but I don't feel that way about food necessarily. I just think it's funny because probably the same person who once made fun of me for having rotis with an okra dish probably like has made it with his wife 25 years later as a fun date night. And I'm, I'm sure that's happened. I could say with high confidence, probably something like that has happened. And in my head, I'm like, it's ironic. It's pretty funny. I'm not mad. I'm glad my culture is getting some good appreciation in terms of the beautiful food it creates, but it's about time. I'm kind of like Liz. I'm like, it's about damn time. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's nice that people see the lights. Yeah. Better late than never. Yeah. You're in the Bay Area now, right? I am. Yeah. So what brought you to the Bay Area? I came to the Bay Area after college to work on a tech job, which is still something I do along with music. So I kind of live this double life, which I think is true for a lot of us creatives. But I also aspire to less of a double life, if that makes sense. Speaking of your double life, and I also have a day job, I work in tech as well. How was navigating that with your family? Did your parents hope you would maybe stick with just being in tech or how did they react to you wanting to pursue music professionally? Yeah, it's a good question. It's not one I would say I fully answered yet. Growing up, they didn't necessarily have a prescribed path for me. It was more like, here's some things you should think about doing. Doctor, engineer. And it was never like, do this or we'll be disappointed in you. But there was like a more subtle nudge, I would say. I actually was planning to go the pre-med track. I took all the pre-med classes. And then I took a couple of CS classes just for fun. And I ended up really liking it. My rebellion, which is so hilarious just to call it that, was to not pursue medicine and instead I pursued CS, which is also <laughs> extremely stable. I'm like, okay, cool. You're so rebellious, Neil. That was my rebellion too. So. <laughs> of course, they were happy about that. They weren't disappointed. And so I didn't get an engineering job, but I ended up doing a tech company and transitioning into product management. So that's what I do. The music thing emerged after being put on pause, I would say, throughout high school and college. In middle school, I was an orchestra. In high school, I stopped being an orchestra to focus on school. And then in college, I did college radio. And so there was a little bit of curation happening in terms of music, thinking about music all the time. And I think after I moved out and realized, hey, my whole life isn't just school, it's now a job. And then it actually stops at some point. 
what should I do at this time? And then I found music and I, I would say I take it seriously like a career. It's not just a hobby to me. And I, I aspire to make it my primary source of income. And I think that my parents are supportive, but when it comes time to consider doing it full time, it'll be a different conversation. So I know ultimately they care about stability. So in my mind, part of it is getting to a level of stability where I feel comfortable, but then also that they feel comfortable and their bar is probably much higher than mine. Yeah. Yeah. Having gone through that, it was a little tricky navigating. Honestly, I chickened out of that conversation and I said I was taking a year off and I let people believe what they wanted to believe. And I was like, I'm taking a year off work. I'm going to do things I want to do. I want to travel. I want to come see you. It was hard for them to accept it. Of course, they were worried financially, but also I was at a big company. So there's a bit of status that came with that, that they felt they were losing. And that was probably hard and probably still is. But with time, they're like, okay, you're smart. You work hard. You'll figure it out, hopefully. And it sounds like your parents are pretty supportive. So they'll probably come around. I hope so. I think sometimes these things are very different in theory compared to reality. From your story, I totally, I would consider doing the same thing. Not really broadcasting, hey, this is a choice I'm making. Because I think this goes back to being children of immigrants. It makes sense why they want us to be in stable jobs. They're coming from this perspective of we're coming to America to create stability and we want that stability for our kids. It's well intentioned, but then there's a bunch of people who are maybe from different backgrounds. Maybe they're white or they're encouraged by their parents to do whatever they want. And that's a completely different dynamic. I feel like my parents are supportive, but if I was to say, hey, I'm going to go and be an artist out of college or out of high school, I don't think that would have been an easy conversation. And some of our peers don't have to go through that. And that in itself is a huge difference and why it can be challenging from an Asian I struggled with that a lot where I often wonder what would it be like if I was encouraged to pursue that as a kid because I always had this passion for it as a kid and I look at the people who are encouraged by their parents and are going to music school or art school and they're getting all these internships in those companies and I always wonder where would I be if I had been encouraged to do that but at the same time following the path that my parents wanted me to follow actually helped me a lot because let's face it, you make good money in CS, okay? And it's interesting. It's not the most boring job in the world. You solve problems. It's intellectually challenging. So I can't really complain much. It wasn't bad to me. I made a pretty good living doing it for a while. And that allowed me to fund my music, to buy gear, to go on trips to Nashville or go to conferences. And so I've grown to see it as, well, it was a different path and it wasn't necessarily worse. It might actually have been better because if I did get an art degree, I probably wouldn't have been able to afford any of those things from the beginning. Because of course, as a person of color too, you go to music school, you graduate, and then you're competing with all the other white kids who graduated. Who do you think is going to get the internship? I don't know. I think that might have been the good path. Yeah, no, I I appreciate that. I appreciate that perspective. It's easy to get caught up in the regret cycle or the what could have been if I had just, you know, fully committed to this. I find myself thinking about that too, but I really do believe that these different paths really create for different creative output too, right? You know, I recently turned 30 and I was thinking about, I'm 30, this is ancient from the music industry's perspective. But then in my head, I'm like, I can probably write songs with a little bit more nuance about heartbreak or existential crises because I've gone through those experiences versus if I tried writing a song like that when I was 20, it wouldn't have made any sense. 
I also think being in tech and working in a corporate job does help organize things like how to organize information. You can project manage your whole release cycle for a musician. And I think it allows me to be a lot more DIY than I normally would, or even find an illustrator and pay them. I can have some income to fund towards that, which I think is meaningful. Yeah. That perspective has been helpful. Also, I think there's benefit in having a more varied skill set. If I had devoted my entire life to music, I feel like that would be really hard to separate my identity from it. So I feel like it's a good thing to have been exposed to other things. It's a good way to ground yourself, yeah. Right, yeah. And then there's also other skill sets that you develop that can benefit your music. And I think it's also, what do you value, time or money? If I didn't have the day job, I maybe would have a lot more time. I'd have double the amount of time that I currently have now. But then the flip side of that is with the day job, I have money so I can outsource things and I can buy gear, like Sherry said. So it's different paths and they're freeing in different ways. So it's just, what do you prefer? And there's value in both. Yeah. And some of the things that are just not in your control, you have to adapt and make do with what you have. And you know, there's that whole constraints breed creativity. And I think that's real. I've been really obsessed with the idea of writing. So outside of my project, I really try to focus on writing with people who have a different perspective or have that identity story, right? Because as many songs as there are about identity and growing up and heartbreak, there's probably a million that haven't been told from our perspective. And a lot of that specificity is actually what creates music that feels connective. So that's a whole set of stories that I think we need to tell in art, not just music. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And also the idea that you need to do one thing full time to be legit. That's bullshit. Honestly, it's just bullshit. I always love the stories of people like Da Vinci who did everything. They weren't just a painter or an inventor. They were a painter and an inventor and multiple other things. Why can't we do that? Why can't we be considered good at many other things? Why do we have to pick just one? We don't have to. I know many people who are in computer science or whatever, they have their main job, but then they're also making money at music and that's fine. We don't need to pick one. If we want to, that's that's great, but when you were talking about that, it made me think of the artist way where the whole notion is we're all artists and that doesn't limit us to one instrument to create art with. That was really eye-opening for me because there's a set of things I do as part of music that I just really didn't like doing, which is like promotion, marketing, content creation, all this stuff that really deeply was like, I have to do this, but I hate it. I want to focus yeah. on music. But that actually helped to reframe it to me as, oh, actually, these are actually other opportunities to be creative. Take your creativity, apply it to making a music video, apply it to making fun content. Huh, I guess I don't have to put myself in this one box. And I think that's really an important point. Yeah, I read this book, I think it was Tribes by Seth Godin. And he was just talking about what does it mean to be an artist? Artists aren't just people who make music and art and literature. It's anybody who comes up with creative solutions in any field. If you're a product manager and you're coming up with interesting ways to optimize what your team is doing or solve a problem that nobody's thought of, that's art. You're using creativity. To me, that was like, yeah, we are all artists if we're not just being robots and going through the motions, right? We're actually putting in ourselves in the job, whatever it is, whether it's finding a better way to make coffee or writing a hit song. It's all creative input. And there is no reason why one should be considered more valued than the other. 
Navigating the industry, has being Asian American affected that at all in terms of how you're perceived, the opportunities you get? Has it been good? Has it been bad? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think it's necessarily, oh, you're Indian American, you don't have access to this. I do think that it quietly closes some doors where it feels like maybe there's some opportunities that I might apply to, but I won't necessarily get considered for because I'm Indian American. And I think part of it is there's just not that many Indian Americans in the music industry today. I was listening to a Twitter space that that was hosted by this group called No Nazar. It's mostly hosted by brown people, but it's open to everyone. And it's creating these spaces for just celebration among the brown community in America. And Jay Wolf was also there on the call. So was Anik Khan. And they were just talking about how we haven't done a good job rallying together and lifting each other up. And there's definitely more room for that. But everyone had a story about here's this opportunity that happened that it didn't feel like I could be a part of. And so it's a lot of these really subtle ways, which is why it's hard to pinpoint and describe. Mm -hmm. But it does feel like there isn't really equal footing with counterparts. And especially you talk about in music, like the songwriter community or pop music. It's a lot of similar looking people. I'll say that. I would love for that to change. And I want to help make that change. But it's one of those things where it's easy to ignore and not change and just focus on your own thing. And I think that's a mistake. I think people do need to rally about it. We do need to talk about it. We need to make it less subtle and hidden and point to these doors that are silently closing. Put a mic on it and amplify it, that type of thing. And I can go from there. Are there any specific examples you can give? I don't know if I've had an experience where I've been denied necessarily, but I've been ignored. Like, hey, want to write together? And they'd be like, no response. I'd just be left on red. That type of thing will happen. And then I have friends who are white dudes. They'll be able to talk to them. They're hanging out and talking. So I don't know if it happens so often that I can give a bunch of examples necessarily, but being left on red, it could also just be that they're busy. I don't know. But I think going to that Twitter space, I heard there are real examples that people have run into. And so it made me reevaluate experiences I've had and, and wonder, was it this other thing? Was it my identity? Was it was that part of it? The other thing I would say that's less abstract is when people see that I'm an Indian American musician making electronic, they're like, okay, are you making Bollywood EDM? No, not really. Your music doesn't sound very Indian. And I'm like, it's not supposed to sound Indian. I'm not trying to make Indian music. I'm making my music. That can be a lot of things. That type of thing happens all the time. People who know nothing about me have asked me, are you an engineer? And I'm like, come on. First of all, like, don't guess that. Second of all, I'm more than my job. Third of all, why are you like, it's 2022. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair though, 70% of the Bay Area is engineers. <laughs> that is fair. I think in the Bay Area, it's different, but it hits different when you're not in the Bay Area. And there's literally no basis for you to just guess that, but you're doing it anyway. Yeah. yeah in the Bay Area, I don't take it personally because you're either a VC or an engineer. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It'd be more surprising if you're not in tech. You'd be like, what? Really? Yeah. I wanted to ask, did you notice a change in how people treated you after 9-11? Honestly, I feel like a lot of what I experienced that was overtly racist was before 9-11 and it was when I was a kid and it was from other toddlers being called a brownie and stuff like weird, which I didn't even necessarily remember. I actually heard about it from talking to my mom more recently and I was like, wow, that's really messed up. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Some kid was like, you can't come to my birthday party because we don't want your kind there. And I'm like, wow, okay. What? I'm like somewhat like a little toddler said that that's insane. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I was like, wow. I, I didn't remember that, which is interesting. But I feel like post 9-11, partly why I didn't necessarily run into it readily was because I moved to a more diverse area. So it probably was just something that didn't feel tasteful or whatever. That's so crazy that as a toddler, that's something that you would even register in your brain. I don't know why I thought, oh, kids are maybe they don't pay attention to that sort of thing. When I was watching the movie Minari, there's a bunch of scenes where it's the kids hanging out together. And in my head, I was like, 
oh god i hope this doesn't happen like i was actually holding my breath in those scenes and it ended up being totally fine the kids in minari who interact with the little korean kids so cute totally normal more just curious but i was holding my breath when those scenes started because i'm like oh man it's gonna be so sad if these little kids are racist how represented do you feel by the term aapi and is there a term that you identify with better i don't have strong feelings about aapi I think it's better than nothing. I do feel like it's a little bit better than Asian American because when I say I'm Asian American, other Asian people have been like, no, you're Indian or you're South Asian. It's one continent. It's fine. I know India is a subcontinent, but like we all have a very similar set of value structures. And I know this for a fact. There's a lot of things we do similarly. There's a lot of values we share, right? And so Asian American was a little bit tough. API is a little bit better. I still feel like there's a little bit of, uh, are you, you know, you're Indian. That doesn't really count. But uh, I think on the whole, it's been better. And I think the adoption of the term has been very fast, which has been nice. And so I've been seeing people use it to describe the Sikh community or to describe Pakistani Americans, Bangladeshi Americans, Chinese Americans, Southeast Asian Americans, everyone. So I think that it's been well adopted and generally it feels like people understand that it's not just this one thing, which is nice. Yeah. So overall, I would say I feel like there's probably room for improvement, but I think it's better than just Asian American. Probably. Yeah, definitely. I've had a similar relationship with that term because I'm Filipino. We all have Hispanic last names. People see my name and go, that's not an Asian name. Like there's this idea that to be Asian, you have to look East Asian. I'm glad that people are realizing now that being Asian American encompasses so many different cultures, physical features and traditions. It's a lot more diverse and it's not a monolith. But for a long time, people would be like, well, you don't actually look Asian or my dad looks, he looks Mexican. And people would be like, is he Asian? And I'm like, Yes. But also, why does it matter what he looks like? Just accept it. I know what you mean. Yeah, oh my god. I can understand people in different sub-Asian cultures can share physical similarities with other ethnic groups, which is all the more reason to not limit this idea of people of this ethnicity look this way. Yeah, I love confusing white people by saying I'm African. That's amazing. You know, when I get to where you're from, usually I'll first say Canada. But if they get really annoying about it, then I'll say, well, actually, I'm from Africa. And then they're like, what the? <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 wait, wait. Where are your parents from? Africa. Where are your grandparents from? They were born in Africa too. But my great great grandparents were from China. But is that what you mean? <laughs> Do you want to go that far back? I usually, honestly, whenever people ask me where I'm from, I say Atlanta, Georgia. And then I wait. And it's a very enjoyable way for me. Over the years, I've come to really relish that pause. <laughs> yeah, I tell people that I grew up near the Mexican border. And sometimes it breaks their brains if they see me as more Asian. But yeah, I always say Texas or I say the Rio Grande Valley. Do you feel like part of your identity is being a Southerner? Do you identify as a Texan or a Southerner? Very little. A big part of that is the part of Texas I grew up in was not like someplace like Denton. The Rio Grande Valley is not quite American and it's not quite Mexican. It's a unique mix of both. And it's a bilingual town. There's pockets of the areas where people don't speak English. It's changed now, but I remember when my parents first moved there, there were lots of places we'd go where we had to know Spanish. So I think because of that, because the town I grew up in was not really a stereotypical Texas town, there's a lot about being a Southerner that I don't necessarily identify with because I just didn't grow up around it. That makes sense. My, yeah. my dad grew up in Miami, and I think he has a very similar experience. Miami is it's really its own culture. Everyone I talk to who's from Florida and not from Miami is like, Miami is like a different world. <laughs> Miami is not Florida. <laughs> yeah. Florida is not Miami. Miami is not Florida. But then growing up in Georgia, I do feel like I'm a 
I feel a sense of kinship with other people from the South, weirdly. I think part of it is being an expat from the South and living in California. Part of it is just little subtle things I say. I mean, y'all is normalizing in general because it's more inclusive, but I'm a heavy y'all user. So did you experience any culture shock when you moved to California? Oh yeah. First of all, I'm like, this is a great place. Everyone's liberal. (laughs) This is crazy. People care about the environment. There are some just general small things that I really appreciated over time. And I'm kind of like, man, how can anyone live south now but i was back home visiting my parents around the election time and that was interesting because we flipped georgia georgia turned blue i got my grandmother vote she voted she helped flip georgia but uh, it was weird because i would leave my parents neighborhood and there would be a rally like a pro-trump rally on one side of the street and a pro-biden rally on the other side of the street they were happening right across from each other and this is just some random suburban road and i'm like This is crazy. I've never seen the different poles of politics appearing in my freaking neighborhood. That was really wild. I like to think it means that there's winds of positive change and more openness and liberalism spreading. Not that liberalism is always a good thing, but at least people becoming more open-minded and not just being like Southern values and conservatism is the only way. (laughs) Are there things that you wish California did? Like, are there things that Georgia does better than California? Wow. I do think that, okay, the big meme about Southern culture is that people are very friendly, the whole Southern hospitality thing. And people make a lot of fun of it. People, especially from New York, East Coast are like, oh, people in the South are so fake and so overly nice. I actually think that Southern hospitality, Southern niceness and friendliness is a really nice thing. And I don't think it's fake. I think it's authentic. It comes from an authentic place. I think in California, people tend to want to avoid conflict or stepping on toes. So they'll sugarcoat something to such an extent that it's not even distinguishable from a lie at that point. They'll be like, oh yeah, I really love the cake you made. They're actually thinking the cake was garbage. But I feel like the Southern mentality here would be like, we're not going to talk about the cake. We're just going to talk about how appreciative we are of the effort that you made. And it'll be like, oh, how'd you make that cake? Oh, that's so cool. It's There's like a little bit of willingness to engage with the good parts instead of just the bad parts. And I think in California, it'll be like, let's engage the bad parts, but let's sugarcoat it. So we can't even tell what we're saying anymore. (laughs) That's interesting. That's my tea. I don't know if that's real, but that's my interpretation. I do feel the same way about Southern hospitality. I don't think it's disingenuous. I think it does come from an authentic place. I've had conservative middle-aged white ladies be like the bless your heart and that sort of thing. And yeah, I don't think they're talking down to me. I don't think that they're being fake, but I understand that the superficial wanting to be nice, I think that occurs a little bit in Austin here too where people tend to sugarcoat things but I do feel the same way about Southern hospitality. I don't think it's a bad thing. There's a certain warmth which I appreciate. Now what I will say is that I think the pace of life is really different and the attitude towards work and ambitiousness is very different and this is more maybe a big city versus suburb thing too Mm -hmm. but living in San Francisco everyone is really type A which I find really nice but it's also exhausting. Whenever I go home I feel like the energy level I'm like vibrating at is a little bit lower and it gives me time and space to like breathe and think differently and slow down a little bit. Yeah it's interesting talking about this it feels like the southern hospitality is very similar to Asian culture in a way. You always welcome guests try to make them feel comfortable and don't talk about the bad thing just talk about the good things. (laughs) There's a lot of similarities there and yeah i've been to nashville a couple of times and i agree people are very nice very friendly and i didn't feel like it was fake i felt like they genuinely just wanted to be friends with everybody so i was talking to someone about how in the south if you get into an elevator 
people will talk to you. How's your day going? Oh, wow. That's a cool thing you're carrying. And then have a good one. In California, that's so rare. It's so rare to the point where when it happens, I'm surprised. Yeah. Suspicious. Like, what? Why are you talking to me? Yeah. <laughs> what do you want from me? I think that's a very Bay Area thing. And maybe it is partly because most of them are engineers and introverts. <laughs> but that, that could be it. You think in LA it's different? People will be friendly on elevators in LA? I definitely felt it the first time I came down to LA. Everybody looks so happy and go lucky here. Very friendly compared to yeah. the Bay Area. I think in the Bay Area, people are friendly too. But the attitude in LA, I felt, was very different. People had this sunshine in them. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it was just Bay Area being different. But yeah, I felt like LA people were very, very social. I felt that in LA too, in pockets. It's very nice. Yeah, so maybe it's not a California thing. It's just like a Bay Area thing, the elevator situation. <laughs> what does an ally mean to you? What does that look like? It's a good topic because people and corporations love talking about Pride and saying Happy Pride Month and then literally doing nothing else. And I really think allyship is, it has to be active. It has to be active support. And so I think on a personal level to me, that looks like engaging and having conversations with people who need an ally, whether they're people you know, or maybe people you don't know. The second is I think actively holding up those people and supporting them. And if it's a business, being a patron and supporting them monetarily, but if it's a creative, sharing them with the world, sharing their art with the world, being like, this is amazing. This is why I appreciate this person. And what I like to do is promote people who deserve allyship and need allyship. And every person who is in a marginalized community deserves allyship. The ones I form personal connections with, especially to check in on them, but also be there for them. And I think part of making music and having a platform, making content, it's an opportunity to use that platform for this purpose. It shouldn't just be like, promote my stuff. Hey, check out my track. We have to do that too. But I think using the platform effectively also means uplifting the people who are around you who inspire you. And I think the other thing about being an ally is like, I have a lot of privilege as a straight male, for example. Realizing that there's people who deserve allyship who are not like me means using my privilege to help, right? Or doing extra for them than I would do for myself, helping them get advantages that they don't have access to. Like these types of things are important to me. I would say that, so to me, being an ally is like all of those things. It's not like, happy pride, here's a rainbow, goodbye. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Corporations just always, it's so cringe, their allyship. They always miss the mark. I'm curious to see what happens on Juneteenth, but before the events of whatever, 2020, no corporation had a stance, no one. This isn't a new issue. It's like, you're all paying attention suddenly because it's all over the media. And yeah. it's all over the media in part because there's this pandemic that no one wants to talk about anymore. And it's, it was all very frustrating. And I'm glad corporations are participating, but it's so performative. That's where I get a little frustrated with it. And it's also where you have to take with a grain of salt. Like, don't just like reshare this nicely graphic design Instagram post, like do something. Donate, right. talk to people about it, engage in it, learn about it, like that type of thing. And with Pride, it's been obviously a few years since the big court case. But around that time, I think corporations were already like doing happy Pride, whatever. But it's just so, they could be doing so much more. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I just Definitely. saw an ad. I don't remember what product it was for, but it was like, Happy Pride. We are creating this <laughs> line of Pride stuff. And I was looking at, okay, are you donating that money? And right. in the fine print, it said 5% of the profits will be donated to Pride. I'm like, 5%? Really? <sighs> <laughs> Come on. Here's our Pride sale, 20% off. No donations going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> So for you, have you had any allies that you'd like to give a shout out to who are supportive of you? It's a pregnant pause, isn't it? 
I'm just having trouble thinking about, I'm trying to think about who's worth shouting out to. Who is a good shout out? I think my family is a very easy one. It's not really like, they, they don't have a choice. They have to be an ally. <laughs> I mean, I think I have a few friends, especially in the Asian American community who I've worked with or who have collaborated with me and they consistently share and promote my work and also confide in me and tell me things like, hey, this thing you did inspired me. And I just think that's the most wholesome and important thing. Like being creative is so hard. There is not that many validation hits you get while you're making stuff creatively, especially on the day to day. Like yeah. for musicians, it's, you put out this one song after five or six months of work, and then you might put out another song and it's you're, ha- you're doing these things like three or four times a year, maybe. If you're going on tour, you may be getting validation from the crowd, but I'm not touring. So for me on the day to day, I don't know if anyone is liking my work or I don't know if I'm doing anything that's meaningful. So to get a message from a fellow creative feels so meaningful. And I think I try to give back by sharing that with people like, hey, I just want you to know that you inspire me. And I know you haven't put out anything right now, but when I think of what being a creative means, I think of you and that that means a lot to me. And those texts, I think are just wholesome and I'm a huge cheese ball, but I, and I, I do them constantly, honestly. I love that. And I do that too. Because as an artist, I know that validation is hard to come by. And when it does come by, it gives you so much hope and so much inspiration to keep going. So I'll send them a message and I say, hey, I really like your art. And Usually that'll make that person's day. I, I also try to save these messages. I will screenshot them and I, I keep them in a little folder. You gotta have them for these hard days. When you get these messages, there's gonna be hard days and it's good to remind yourself. You're not just making for yourself and there are people out there who get a lot out of what you're doing. That's a good idea. I should start doing that. What do you wish the API community did more? I like what you were saying about tribes. I think we need to do more to help people find their tribes. We need to band together. Two or three years ago, right before the pandemic, I was really into this Facebook group called Asian Creative Network, ACN. And it was really cool. For the first time, maybe since I started Facebook, I was looking forward to going on Facebook because every day I would see a post from someone who is Asian in the world creating some sort of art and sharing it. So my feed was just filled with ACN posts. And it was so freaking inspiring. Every day I log into Facebook, I'd be like, wow, I'm inspired. I'm literally getting inspired every day. The community went dormant. I don't really see any posts from it anymore, but that was such a cool thing. And I think there's some sort of gap that that was filling that I don't know has been filled since. In general, I think it's connecting people together who do have the struggle. Like they can't fully be creative or they have been told not to be creative or focus on a nine to five. And I think we should be uplifting each other and being supportive of each other and creating more space for those communities, helping people find those tribes. I think that's the most valuable thing. Those connections are going to be more meaningful than anything, I think. I found one of my most frequent, my favorite co-writers who I wrote 100% with on ACN. And I found a photographer who I worked with on ACN. And I found other people I've collaborated with on ACN. And so it honestly started opening a lot of doors for me from the very get-go. And there's a lot of people from ACN that I still keep in touch with. That's awesome. I'll have to check out that group. Sometimes they might still be active, but Facebook doesn't show you their posts anymore because Facebook algorithm, you have to actively go and engage with things for Facebook to keep showing you stuff, which is very annoying. That's a good note. I didn't even think about that. Good idea. Maybe I should just go and aggressively engage. Go like a bunch of stuff there and then they'll be like, oh, he likes that. Okay, show him more stuff. That's why I also make it a point to interact with BIPOC content on Facebook. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, because otherwise the algorithm will just show me white people. All right. Before we let you go, we have a few rapid fire questions that we ask all our guests. These are just one word or one phrase answers. You don't have to explain, but you can if you like. And then we'll let people know where to find you and give them all your links. 
Cool. Ready? So what was the first language you learned? Uh, Hindi. What language do you speak with your parents? English. What's an Asian food that you should like but don't? Ooh, uh, I've never heard that one. What is an Asian food that you'll never get tired of? Probably Mapo Tofu. Yeah. Name someone in your field who is in the Asian diaspora and who you look up to. Probably Jay Wolf. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. And before we let you go, do you want to let us know where people can find you if they want to collaborate with you or just tell you how awesome you are? Yeah, totally. You can find me on Instagram at Music. all of the streaming platforms as Parent, And then on the social media platforms as on Twitter, I think it's Apparently, And on TikTok, it's Parent. Sadly, cannot get full consistency, but here we are. All right. Thank you so much, Neil. It was great chatting with you. And let's keep in touch. Yeah, so fun. It was easy to talk to you both. Thank you so much. Here are our takeaways for today's episode. Number one, children face racism as early as kindergarten. So if you have kids, you need to teach them not to be racist that early. Number two, the children who face racism early on often forget about it, but their parents do remember. We saw this in Lisa's episode as well in season one, episode four. Number three, moving to a more diverse neighborhood can mean lower tolerance for racism and hence a much more enjoyable school experience for kids. Number four, while the American South may lack the nuanced understanding or interest in conversations about race, there is a genuine interest in engaging in a positive way with things that they don't quite understand or don't necessarily like. There seems to be this willingness to find common ground that we can both latch on and connect over, as opposed to trying to find a way to connect with the part that they don't like. So perhaps an interesting way of engaging with people from a Southern culture might be to start with the things that we have in common rather than pointing out differences. And lastly, finding people who look like us in our niche, being inspired by each other, supporting each other is a great way to grow and taking back our power. So find your tribe. If you would like to be invited to our end of season online event, please send us a DM or an email. Our email is nuancespodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook at nuancespod. We conclude this episode with the song 100% by Air Apparent and Emia.
and ten. I ain't never been too good at relationships. She want rocks on your hand, I put a rock on my neck. I should've been chasing you, but I was chasing a check. You never know what you have till you're too far gone. Just a nice little hole that I dug on my own. I saw you in the gram, you was in your zone. You're doing real well without me. That's it for today. I'll see you next week for another nuanced conversation. Nuanced conversation.